The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. 2017 is going to be a volatile economic year. We may see politicians throughout the world attempting to control central bank policies. Several renowned financial analysts have warned that political interference in central bank policies may mean our economic misses of inflation and growth targets. Gold is an international currency that can't be issued or controlled by governments. If you don't have the only hard currency that has outlasted every politician and every failed idea of governments for centuries, you need to speak to Goldline right now and learn how easy it is to add gold to your portfolio or IRA. Now is the time to diversify your financial portfolio by adding gold. Call 1-800-913-GOLD. Buying real gold is easy and fast at Goldline. And you're going to be happy that you finally made the call. 1-800-913-4653. Goldline also offers price protection against short-term market fluctuations on qualifying purchases. So buy with confidence. Read Goldline's important risk information and find out if buying gold is right for you. Call Goldline. 1-800-913-4653. Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jezer on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jezer. Welcome back to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze radio network it's always great to be with you and thank you for joining me if you're new thank you for listening and uh, hopefully you'll hear here a voice that's unafraid to take on radical islamists political islam and the global movement that threatens our security that is the underbelly of radical islam i'm one of those muslims who believes that we not only have a muslim problem that needs a muslim solution but that it can only be solved by muslims and uh, for all of you uh, Muslims out there, join our group of reformers, listeners to reform this. And for non-Muslims, help us reform, help push the needle towards those who believe in liberty and freedom who are willing to take on the theocrats. And this week is, again, sadly, or perhaps in a good way, not boring, again brings us another defeat that is sad uh, in turkey but a lot of lessons a lot of uh, uh, teaching moments if you will to be learned as the world sees erdogan for what he is now the bizarre thing is that the turkish people went to the polls to weigh in on the referendum a plebiscite that stood to hand erdogan and his now regime, unparalleled, unprecedented powers to continue to wield autocratic control, to continue to change the character of Turkish democracy towards the cult of Erdogan, the Islamism of Erdogan, the caliphate of Erdogan. Now, he won't call it a caliphate. He's still claiming to be a participant in the Turkish democracy. But after weeks, if not months, of fear-mongering, of a sense that uh, Turkey was besieged by enemies from abroad, and the only solution was the empowerment of the powers of the presidency, this so-called coup that he had last summer, which many believe was staged, it's been almost impossible to 
you know, the very truth, but most reasonable viewers of Turkey from abroad have come to the conclusion that it was staged. It didn't have any of the hallmarks of previous legitimate coups. And shortly thereafter, much like the Reichstag fire and much like you and I have talked about months ago when the when the coup happened last summer, it became a reason for Recep Erdogan to purge universities of 21,000 professors, to purge the government of what he felt to be disloyal civil servants, and on and on. And this week is no different. We see Recep Erdogan, who since 2014 has been holding on to sort of a bizarre mechanism of power, even though he is not the prime minister, he was president. And yet, as he ascended from prime minister to presidency, the presidency used to be more of a titular head. Now, it became an executive head. And he was extra constitutional in those efforts to control the government. And Turkey remained in a state of emergency since the coup last summer. He suspended 130,000 people suspected of being connected to the failed putsch and to arrest about 45,000 in addition to the 21,000 professors that we know vanished. It was an intimidation of the opposition at the time. And now this election brought forth a referendum, a referendum in which the, the erstwhile dictator or the actual dictator claimed that he would use the results to legitimately express the voice of the people. He asked for the ability to abolish the post of prime minister and transfer executive power to the president. He asked for the ability to allow the newly empowered president to issue decrees and appoint many judges and officials responsible for scrutinizing his decisions. So broadening the judicial branch, but making it directly responsive to his presidency. He wanted to limit the president to two five-year terms, but give the option of running for a third term if Parliament truncates the second one by calling for early elections. He wanted to allow the president to order disciplinary inquiries into any of Turkey's 3.5 million civil servants, according to an analysis of the Turkish Bar Association. And it goes on. Let's step back for a second. Now the results, by the way, are in. 51.3% of Turkey's citizens voted in favor of the referendum. Can you imagine? So, so the first point that should immediately jump out at all of you is that Turkey's governmental constitutional rule of law hangs on the balance of 50% plus one at any point, changing that constitutional underpinning. 50% plus one. So we can sit, and yes, I'll pontificate for you in a little bit about what this may mean for Turkey. But what kind of constitution allows itself to be unraveled by a simple majority? Let alone 
which should immediately now, as we see this referendum passed by 1.3% of the population margin, that democracy is majoritocracy. Democracy, as I think Ben Franklin said in American history, is three wolves and a sheep voting on what's for dinner. And this was no huge margin. This was a very, very slim margin. So in some ways, we should have some assurance, reassurance, that regardless of what election irregularities, polling irregularities, ballot irregularities, there's concerns of fraud, concerns of external ballots that came from outside areas that were possibly not sealed correctly, that could have shifted anywhere in the various percentages. And in fact, there's evidence, if you look at the major cities, the major cities by far rejected the referendum. So the irregularities were reportedly from some of the smaller cities all through Turkey. As the New York Times reported, academics and members of the opposition were concerned that the new system would threaten the separation of powers on which liberal democracies have traditionally depended. You think? Erdogan has been trampling on those separation of powers for years. And now let's step back for a second. Make it clear. In 1996, Erdogan said not only a statement that is clear for his disrespect and dismissal of democracy, but a statement that would stand true for every Islamist that I've ever known. What are an Islamist? Islamists are those who believe that the political system, the political party, the national identity should all be about being Muslim, about being Islamic, about putting into place Sharia law. And he said in 1996, when he was the mayor of Istanbul, he said, democracy is like a train, or he might have said a tram. You get on it until you get where you need to go, and then you get off. So therefore, it's a means to an end. As the Muslim Brotherhood used it in Egypt, claimed to have dismissed terrorism five, ten years ago, they became so-called peaceful and were, were embraced as being part of the political system. You can't dismiss their ideas or you marginalize them. But they were felt to be embracing the system, and then Morsi becomes president, and next thing you know, constitutions being written, and, and the entire country is being radicalized by a president who claimed that any criticism of him is equal to criticism of Islam, who empowered judiciaries and police to enforce blasphemy laws like never before in Egypt. Well, Erdogan is making good now on his disrespect for democracy. And I think that 51% is very telling. You had the opposition party, which is the secular party now, has always been the secular party, sort of the origins in Ataturk, with a long history of a, a stable secular Turkey. Now, Make no mistake to those of you who believe clearly Turkey has been headed in the last 12 years in the wrong direction, even more than 12 years since the AKP took over. However, make no mistake, the previous party 
was no democratic picnic. It was also a it was also a, a a authoritarian party in many ways. Now, Turkey's respect for elections and democracy proved, especially in the transfer of power from that secular party to the AKP. The AKP is Erdogan's Islamist party. The AKP is the Muslim Brotherhood of Turkey. The AKP is the Sharia party of Turkey that believes that the Islamic identity of Turkey is what it is as an Islamic Republic. And they have dreams of bringing back the real Islamic caliphate of the Ottoman era. So Erdogan has been slight, slowly seeing slippage of his control of his power in Turkey. And from purging of the military over the last few years, slowly of some of the leadership that threatened his ability to do that, to his concern of the Gulenesque movement, the Gulen movement, the Hizmet as it's called, Kismet movement, to the so-called coup from last summer to now this referendum has been a slow slide into Islamic theocracy. And in addition to Islamic theocracy, one of the differences with the AKP versus the Brotherhood is that AKP has also become a cult of Erdogan. There have been many rallies in which it was clear that the rally around his image, around his leadership in a cultish way that defies some of the Islamist ideology. Because Islamists are grassroots movements, and this is why you'll see if you look at internally in the Turkish media that there's been conflict within the AKP. So Erdogan is moving to consolidate power both within and outside the AKP party. When we return, let's look into, I'll talk a little deeper about what Turkey can mean for the rest of the Middle East, what Turkey can mean for possibly a silver lining of a Turkish awakening. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform. This on the Blaze Radio Network. We'll be right back. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jazzer. The Blaze Radio Network. The progressive movement is full of lies. Why do Americans keep falling for the deception? In his new book, Liars, Glenn Beck reveals the simple answer, fear. At our most basic level, we're all afraid of something. And progressives exploit this by offering us solutions to our fears. Solutions based on lies and an unrelenting hunger for power and control. Understanding the roots of these lies is key to helping us stop the disease of progressivism. Liars by Glenn Beck. On sale now at glennbeck.com slash liars. Reaching the fault lines of today, this is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This. It's great to be with you. And, you know, there's uh, a lot happening in Turkey. And I think if you can begin to understand what happened this week, you may begin to get your pulse on a, on a solution. 
on a sense of understanding that the transformations that are occurring across many of these Muslim-majority countries, while they may be headed south, while they may be headed towards instability, towards the solidification of our enemies, which is what an Islamic theocracy is, is the enemy of freedom, the enemy of individual rights, and the enemy of the West. But understanding this will help us to find who our allies are internally, not only in Turkey, but in Indonesia, Malaysia, Saudi Arabia, Syria, Egypt, Sudan, and across the Muslim-majority world. So in Turkey, by the way, this is no small conversation. Turkey is a member of NATO. I was chagrined to read the White House's readout of the phone call from President Trump to Mr. Erdogan. President Trump, who's been lecturing NATO about the need, and correctly so, hats off to President Trump for lecturing NATO about their need to pay up, to bring in their fair proportional share of what the benefits they get from the NATO alliance are. He was criticized roundly for that in the campaign because it's as if he was threatening to abandon NATO, but he reassured us now in the past month or so that we're not abandoning them, but again, reminded them that they're going to need to pay up. And that makes sense. That's how our relationship is. Well, President Trump, who's been tough with NATO, seems to have a soft spot when it comes to Turkey. Maybe not. We'll give him a chance to prove what his policy is, but Erdogan wasn't up for elections. He didn't need a congratulatory call from the White House. And yet President Trump called for a brief call to thank him and congratulate him on his victory in the referendum. Really? And then he went on, understandably, to call upon support from President Erdogan in the war against ISIS, that we would continue not only in Syria to decimate ISIS, but in the region, and also to keep Turkey secure. That's all fine. And also called upon Turkey's support in the attacks and response to the Assad regime using chemical weapons. That's all fine. I'll remind you that Assad was for many years an ally of Turkey that Turkey only did the 180 against him a year into the revolution when the Islamists started to gain grounds in which they felt that Assad was on the way out and thus they took the side of who they felt was the winning cause even though for years they had been on the side for decades of the Assad regime. So many of those who believe in freedom and liberty are not believers that the Turks were on the side of real revolution for freedom. But that's neither here nor there in this conversation. That The reality of this conversation is about America putting the pressure on a NATO ally regarding its inability to adhere to universal human rights, its inability to stay true to individual rights and to stay true to being a democracy. We should have never allowed them into NATO. But as NATO members, we should hold them accountable to the principles of the other democracies. And I really think it is amazing. You know, on the U.S. 
Commission on Religious Freedom, International Religious Freedom, Turkey has always been for many years on the watch list. And there's a reason for that. Religious minorities are suppressed in their free speech in Turkey. The Dianet, the religious authority in Turkey, controls even the sermons from the minarets across the mosques through Turkey. Now, they would tell you that's a way to control the extremism, but it's also a way to brainwash and control the political and, and theological and theocratic agenda of the regime. So I don't think Turkey deserves being in NATO. I certainly don't think we should be congratulating the new newfound caliph of Turkey based on what the referendum actually did. And I hope the president and the White House start to rethink and explain to the American people what our approach will be to Turkey. Because in Turkey is a clinic about what America, we were critical. Remember how critical we appropriately were, and President Trump was, of the Obama administration's subservience to the Muslim Brotherhood. And the Obama administration's response at the time, and still is that, well, this is the democratically elected government of Egypt. Well, that's fine. Nobody's saying that we're endorsing the coup that happened afterwards. But just because somebody and a group and a party is elected democratically doesn't mean that we should endorse them. Because our support and our determination of who is and who is not our ally should be based on whether they share our values, should be based on whether they believe in individual rights, in liberty free speech. If Erdogan and his regime continue to imprison free thinkers, like the pianist who mentioned something about Islam and was put into prison for weeks, if not months, for blasphemy against Islam, even though he was a devout Muslim, this inability to tolerate free speech and critical thinking is the downfall of their democracy, and we should use the leverage we have not only as regional influencers, as the only superpower on the planet, but as a fellow member of NATO, and put them on notice not only for paying their share fare, for transactional influence, but actually for principled influence. I hope they walk that back. But this referendum has a lot to be learned. Those points that I laid out, his control over civil servants, 3.5 million of them, the dismissal of the prime minister's position, the control of more judges, clearly Turkey is moving away from its democracy, if not has moved away. But the silver lining, as I mentioned before, I believe... Remember, the Arab countries are going through a transformation. We are living in a time in history in which you will see that there have, yes, there's missed opportunities that have shifted towards Islamist regimes, be it in Libya, be it in Egypt, that now shifted back to a military dictatorship after its coup in 2013. But... There's transformation happening. There is movements towards 
revolutions against dictatorships. And eventually, remember, revolutions in Europe took many permutations. I don't know how many there were in France. Nine, who knows how many. And in Egypt, there will be more. In Syria, still evolving in this horrific civil war. But ultimately, they're finally, because of social media, because of the ability to mobilize grassroots rallies and movements and ideas, moving against dictatorship that will eventually defeat both military dictatorship and Islamist theocracies. Iran will eventually move away from its theocracy, never to be elected again after the people have realized after 35 plus years of theocracy. 38 years of theocracy, what happens? The Green Revolution will, if it's able to, get traction to finally defeat them and return some semblance of a secular government. But that will need a Persian awakening. Maybe this now in Turkey will be the seed. We saw the Gezi Square rallies and demonstrations last summer. This time, not last summer, I'm sorry, 2013. And those demonstrations were a protestation of some of the changes of some of the characteristic architecture and places that were being torn down by the Erdogan regime in the name of Islamism and theocracy and Islamic identity versus secular identity. Maybe those were the the fetal stages of the Turkish awakening. Maybe this referendum now will be the catalyst to transform Turkey towards a real Turkish awakening towards freedom and liberty, in which it can have a constitution that has the underpinnings of not only a true separation of powers, but the protection against military dictatorship and the protection against quixotic shifts in the constitution by 50% plus one. It will need to truly become a republic either through a federal system or a system in which you at least need, as we have in the United States, 67, two-thirds of the states that need to ratify constitutional changes. This all will need to be revisited, but can only be revisited in a revolution, in an awakening, in a Turkish awakening. So I think the teaching point is the long-term Policies should be to hold the Turkish people and its government accountable to democratic principles of freedom and liberty for individual rights, religious liberty, free speech, political liberties, intellectual liberties of every individual, Muslim, Sunni, Shia, Alawi, all of the different sects in Turkey. And then to hold them accountable to NATO and if not, to usher them out, to have our president hold them accountable in every conversation. Perhaps he shouldn't have even called him if we're not going to congratulate him. Yes, do the diplomatic dance, but not congratulate them for imposing a draconian referendum that passes by the slim margin that a majority insists on continuing to kiss the feet of the cult of Erdogan. Turkey's evolving. It may get a lot worse before it gets better. But we need to change the paradigm of picking the lesser of two evils, just like in Syria, just like in Egypt. If we want to get from A 
to F. There are many steps between the B, C, D, E. You may say, well, B is better than A, so let's just stop at B. Or you might say, let's stay at A because B is worse than A. But remember, A to B could be a pathway like in Iran. From the Shah to the Islamist theocracy, then on to other things that might be better than where we started at A or B. And I would tell you that it is human nature to evolve towards liberty. But without the ability to defend themselves, without the stimuli from the free world and from the West, if we just let Darwin evolve in Turkey and Syria and Iran, evil will win. And currently theocracy and evil is winning. We need a strategy. We need a long-term plan. But in the short term, stand for our principles, stand for our NATO democracies. Do not congratulate Erdogan. Start to work with the free-thinking secularists in Turkey. Stand against the imposition of blasphemy laws. Stand against false coups. Stand against Sharia law, the caliphate, and any verbiage from dictators like Erdogan that try to marginalize freedom and secularism. This is Udi Jasser on Reform This, and we'll be right back. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jezer. The Blaze Radio Network. Are you worried about your mom or dad living alone in their house? Hi, I'm Joan London. Listen, I know how difficult it is to find senior care for someone you love. That's why I recommend a free service called A Place for Mom. They are the nation's largest senior living referral service. Call A Place for Mom today. To receive free information on senior living communities in your area, call A Place for Mom at 1-800-803-6951. The Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This, another segment. It's great to be with you. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for sticking with me. And if this is your first episode, I hope you find a voice that you've been waiting to hear, a voice of hope, a voice of realism, a Muslim patriotic voice that believes it's our role to lead the reform. This week, we had to yet deal again with another horrific crime committed by a radical Muslim in Fresno. And again, as always, there's always something to learn, something to glean, not only from the act itself, but from the reporting and from the fallout. We saw 39-year-old Corey Ali Muhammad in Fresno. It turns out he had apparently committed an act of murder against a security guard five days earlier. Motive uh, was unclear on that one. But then he decided to commit acts of mass murder in shooting as many people as possible. He was heard saying Allahu Akbar during them. He is uh, and also targeted, not randomly as the police tried to say, but was clearly targeting white men in the acts he was committing. Um, He, police, uh, if you will, said it was clear that race was a factor. 
but refused to discuss a motive. It was confirmed and corroborated that shouts of Allahu Akbar uh, were said, but also they felt that race was a motive. So they felt that because this was being labeled a quote-unquote hate crime with the Individuals including Zachary Rendalis, a 34-year-old Pacific Gas and Electric employee, Mark Gassett, 37-year-old, David Jackson, 58, were shot near Catholic Charities in Fresno. And he had also shot a 59-year-old man coming out of a house but missed him. He had also allegedly pointed the gun at three Hispanic females who heard the gunshots and got into their car. Muhammad approached the passenger side and pointed the gun, but didn't fire. Apparently, because race was a motive, and he was trying to kill white people. This is horrific. And as we look at his Facebook posting and a lot of his other social media footprints, he was a radicalized Muslim who was not... Connecting, it didn't appear to be having any radical Islamic global groups, but some some of the same verbiage that we see in some of the racially motivated, if you will, Nation of Islam crowd, uh, the black identity movements such as the Black Panther movements, the new Black Panther Party, and others. And we've seen a lot of overlap between the Black Panther Party racial identity, racial supremacism, if you will, in which they demonize the white community and the separatism of Nation of Islam and the verbiage of anti-Semitism that comes out of its leader, Louis Farrakhan. What's amazing, though, is if you look at the reporting, they want to pigeonhole it or check a box that this was a hate crime and had nothing to do with terrorism. Well, how do we define terrorism? How many times has the left tried to say that terror is the use of inflicting fear and mass shootings upon civilians, no matter what it may be, and they want to identify what happened to Gabby Giffords, what happened in the schools as terror? Sure, that's domestic terrorism. But when we talk about global terrorism at this point, clearly jihadist groups are the primary threat. So if this guy doesn't belong to a jihadist group, is this terrorism? Well, terrorism, by definition, is the desire to inflict fear upon a population by targeting unpredictable civilians in public places, non-combatants, through acts of wanton violence, through bombings, through vehicular attacks through axes, machetes, knives, whatever it takes to inflict fear upon a population. Now, when it's committed by a group such as Al-Qaeda and ISIS, they have a mission, which is a political one in addition to religious. Their religious is to invoke Sharia wherever they have control, to create an Islamic state, a caliphate, but also to withdraw the effects the power, the influence of America and of the West upon Muslim-majority lands. So by that definition of Islamist terror, does this guy fit the mold? 
doesn't appear to be based on what we initially know. And if you look at some of the reports, it appears that he's really just part of the radicalized black identity movement that looks upon anyone who's not black in a racist way. And this guy was pushed towards violent extremism within that black identity movement. This radicalization process often happens in prisons, can happen within those communities. But I think the most important thing that I, I, I want to see us learn from this, as with every case we try to learn something, is that these cases are not going to fit into one box. And when the left collectivists use minority groups to get fervor for their hate for the right, for their blaming of America's ills, for radicalization of Muslims upon the right. And they claim that they, the left, are the salvation for Muslim minorities against the bigots on the right. That collectivizes Muslims into an identity movement under the banner of Islamism or Islam. So there you see, globally, especially in the West, the synergy between the Islamic identity movement, where Muslims unite in a body politic as a party, as an identity movement, with the left's identity movements, be it for Black Lives Matter, be it for any type of identity, racial identity. And that's where you've seen me criticize the racialization of Islam because Islam is a idea. It's a faith. It's a philosophy. So it's going to vary in its approaches. It'll be very diverse from left to right to, to theocratic, fundamentalist, secular, whatever it may be. There are many of those ideas. It's not a racial identity. But the racialization of it is used not only by the left non-Muslims, but the racialization of Islam and the identity movement is why you see the black liberation movement, such as with Reverend Wright, Jeremiah Wright, and his GD America speech that we heard when we talked about President Obama's campaign before he even ever became president, there was issues about how radical Reverend Wright's message was. And they said, well, he's part of the black liberation movement within the Christian community. And surprise, surprise, at the time, it was not a coincidence that Reverend Wright was close friends with Louis Farrakhan. Because the black liberation theology is very close to the nation of Islam theology. While the Nation of Islam might use the Qur'an, their English version of it is in many ways actually different, but bottom line is, is they self-identify as Muslims. But yet it's a racial identity that they see their faith, so it's more of an identity movement. And from that, since the time of Malcolm X, when the Nation of Islam was born, you've seen, or the Elijah Muhammad had born it, named Malcolm X was brought into the nation of Islam while he was in prison. Now, what's often is missed is Malcolm X abandoned the racialization of Islam and the nation of Islam after he returned from Hajj and declared that he was a mainstream Sunni Muslim. 
Now, we can get later into other episodes. I'll talk to you about the fact that many of the African-American leaders of ISNA, the Islamic Society of North America, one of the Muslim Brotherhood legacy groups, have taken some of that identity movement and brought it into synergy with the Islamist movements of the Muslim Brotherhood legacy groups. And we see that with Muhammad Majid, Siraj Wahaj, and others who have come into prominence in ISNA, but that's because they told the line of the Islamist Salafi jihadi movements, if you will. They claim to be nonviolent. They report being against violent jihad, but they are civilizational jihadists who believe in the Islamist movements. But these are all intersecting circles, and when we're talking about the Fresno terrorist, yes, if you wanted to fit him, most likely he is a this was a hate crime of a individual violently motivated to, to kill white people. But we cannot get past the fact that he declared Allahu Akbar. Yes, I say Allahu Akbar in my prayer, my five prayers every day, 20, 30, 40 times, as many as it's part of our prayers, if not more. So it's not the fact that he said Allahu Akbar, which means God is greatest in Arabic, but the fact that he put the punctuation of a faith identity to the act, this horrific act that he did, so that his Islamic identity was racialized and is relevant to understanding why this individual would commit this act and is relevant to looking in the radicalization pathways that groups like the new Black Panther Party that leaders like Louis Farrakhan and the Nation of Islam provide while they might claim to be anti-violence when Louis Farrakhan endears himself and speaks very positively about Muammar Gaddafi while speaking vilely and hatefully about Jews and spews anti-Semitism. And then you hear Keith Ellison, who was a spokesperson for the Nation of Islam for years, then go out of his way to try to separate himself from the anti-Semitism of Louis Farrakhan, but yet didn't do very well in doing that still almost became the head of the DNC because of this mixing, this brew that the left brews and intermixes with identity movements that welcome those who build the fervor of individuals around racial identity like Black Lives Matter, like Nation of Islam, like the Black Panther Party, and like its most militant recent example, Corey Muhammad. So when you look at these examples, he may not have anything to do with ISIS. He probably uh, ha may not have even gone to mosque recently since his Islamic identity was likely a racial identity. But it's very relevant to understanding how to counter-radicalize, which is to teach young Muslim youth that Islam is not a race, it's a belief that their primary loyalty is to America, to a diverse America. That Islam undergirds their morals, their character, their ethics, their integrity, their honesty. But we are all 
under God in America. And that we don't collectivize under one faith when voting, when being politically active, or when moving politically. So as we look at the description, it saddened me that the media was unable to have just a mature conversation about it being both a hate crime and an act of terror by a radical identity movement of Islam, whatever it might be. Not my Islam, not any Islam of any Muslims I know, but certainly a guy who had an identity of a form of Islam in America, that is. Silence from Muslim groups so far. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jezer. Reaching the fault lines of today. The Blaze Radio Network.